All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and get started this morning. Um, if y'all would turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to be really in the middle part of the chapters today, but I wanted to, um, I wanted to read what we're going through today because we're only going to be in a handful of verses, which is pretty uh, contrary to what we normally do. So I want to read through this real fast. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Peter says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. And Peter's going to go on to quote Psalm 34. He says, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Would you all pray with me? Father, thank you for today and for bringing us here this morning. Lord, I pray that as we go through your word today, um, Lord, that everything that is spoken would not be my words, but they would be yours. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds our ears for what it is you want to teach us this morning and what it is you want us to learn. Um, I pray that we would walk away from here today um, convicted and, and uh, Lord, apply this to our lives. So it's in your name I pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, like I just read, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3 today. Uh, we're in week 7 and we've titled today's lesson, Subjection, Suffering, and Sanctification. Now, over the past few weeks, we've done talked a lot about what it means to submit. We've talked a lot about submission, especially within suffering, in situations that are hard, circumstances that are hard. What does submission look like? Uh, we, Peter's gone through specific examples, as we'll see. Um, but we've included sanctification here for an important reason. Today, you're not going to hear me say the word sanctification really at all, but what's implied in everything that we talk about is this idea of sanctification, this, this lifelong process of you and I becoming more and more like the Lord and growing in our relationship with him. And part of submission, subjection, and, and, and especially in suffering is this process of sanctification. So this underlies everything that we're going to talk about today. Now, over the past few weeks, Peter has gotten very specific. He's talked about um, servants submitting to their masters, wives submitting to their husbands, husbands honoring their wives in the same way. He, he's gone to very specific situations. We've seen this pretty much start in chapter 2. But today, he's going to, or at least in our passage today, he's going to take a step back and really give us a 30,000-foot view and say, okay, everything that I've said so far, all the situations that I've talked about, here is the main point. Here is what I want you to get out of it. So pick up with me in verse 8. He says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. What's so fascinating here is he uses the word finally, and he, which pretty much means, in this case, he's summing up his argument. He's summing up his point. Like I said, he's going to take a broad view. He's been very specific over the past few chapters, but now he's going to take the, the larger view. Because remember, he's writing 
to a group of churches. He, he's not writing to just one church, where we see in Paul's letters, like he's writing to the church in Philippi, or the church in Corinth, or Ephesus, or you know, so on and so forth. He's writing to all of the churches that we saw at the beginning of chapter 1. Remember, he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to all these churches, and now in chapter 3, he's going to take this broad view and speak in general to all of them. But the, the Greek word here for finally is the word telos. The definition of this word, I think, is so cool because it talks about the principal end, the chief aim, or the main purpose. So Paul, or Peter is wanting to make sure that these people understand that this is the main point. This pretty much summarizes what I've talked about to this point, so make sure you're listening. It's the conclusion of the argument that he's talked about and started really at the beginning of chapter 2 when it comes to living a life that's marked by the fear of the Lord, loving others, and then even into submission as we get into chapter 3. But all of this can be summed up by the phrase, do good. I feel like every single week we've said, do good. That's Peter constantly is saying, do good, no matter what the circumstance is. And that's basically going to be the point that he makes today, is we need to, and he's going to continue to make this point, we need to do good. Like I said, he says, all of you. And he's giving these, these five commands, as we saw, as we'll, and we'll dive into all those today, but he gives these five commands that should be a part of every believer's life. Now, what's interesting here is these five things are counter to what the world would want us to do, how the world would want us to act. It's kind of interesting. I was listening to a sermon that Cody gave on this passage a number of years ago, and one of the things he said really stuck out to me. When it comes to living like this, living in this way, when we live like Christ, when we live our lives in such a way that we are honoring the Lord and trying to live as much as we can like Christ, we shouldn't be surprised when the world treats us the same way that they treated him. In fact, Scripture tells us to expect that. That's something that we need to expect to happen. Because we're acting in a way that's counter, that's opposite to, what the way, to a way that the world would want us to live. But here's something important. Peter isn't addressing at this point the individual. He's addressing the community as a whole. And so when he goes through these five characteristics, he's speaking, yes, to you and me, and we should live this way, but he's speaking to the body of believers. This is something that we should do in community. We should act this way as a community of believers, as the body of Christ. And so keep that in mind as we go through these today. So the five characteristics, I want to spend some time just diving deep into them and really trying to understand what it is Peter is wanting his readers to, to get, and then by extension, you and I. So he says, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So unity of mind, what, what does this mean? Well, it means we should have one mind despite our differences. I feel like a, a few weeks ago when we were talking about um, loving others, we, we mentioned a lot about, it. man, it's, it's okay to disagree, but we have to disagree honorably. We have to disagree harmoniously. We, we have one mind. Having one mind doesn't mean we agree on every little thing. There's not a person in this room that could find somebody else that y'all agree on literally everything in life. That's just statistically not possible, especially in the world we live in today. But 
We should have one mind despite our differences. Now, the Greek word here for unity is homophron. Now, this word comes from, the, or it's the root word for our word harmonious. So basically what Peter is saying here is we should live harmoniously despite our differences among believers. Now remember, he's talking to the community as a whole when we as believers should live in, in whether it's disagreement or agreement, we should live harmoniously among other believers. And it's fun, funny because Paul makes the same point in a lot of his writings. And you're going to see today, as I go through these different characteristics, some of the scriptures that I use to back up my point is Paul saying pretty much the same thing. So you're seeing it, it was so cool for me to realize this as I was studying over the past couple of weeks that Paul and Peter were generally going to different audiences, but God is using them to say the same thing. And so you see a lot of the same thing in both of their writings. But look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. So you see Paul making the point saying, in the name of Christ, do this. So in, in the, he's making the same point here. Now, if you remember a few... Um, a few months ago, here at Christ Chapel on Sunday mornings, we were going through 1 Corinthians, and I can remember getting to this passage and remembering that, man, the church at the time, they were disagreeing on a lot of different things, and the appeal that Paul is making is, hey, have one mind. Be, be unified in the things that matter, right? It's, it's okay to disagree, but let's do so harmoniously. Look at what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says, the plea here, the plea of Peter in this verse, is to have agreement on the substantive, team, uh, substantive matters that draw us together. What I love about this is what he's saying is, man, we can disagree, but we should do so honorably and harmoniously, but what we have to agree on is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel, the, the very fact that we, we believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life, came down to earth, died on the cross for our sins, so that you and I might have a relationship with him. Those are the things we've got to agree on. And the things that we disagree on, we're not going to do so in anger and resentment and hatred. We're going to do so in a loving way. And we'll see Peter speak to love multiple times, even in just this one verse. But here's the thing, having a unified mind as a body of believers draws us back to Christ. Because you and I can't have one mind if we don't know the mind of Christ. That's where all of this has to begin. We have to know the mind of Christ before you and I can have a unified mind as a body of believers. This is something that we collectively must do. Look at this prayer from Jesus. This is in John chapter 17. But Jesus himself prays for this for you and I well before any of us were even a thought. Look at what he says. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. 
So this isn't something that Peter or Paul just pulled out of a hat. No, they, they go back to Jesus Christ when Jesus prays for this for you and I. And what's going to be so cool to see is in every single one of these characteristics, in really the entire book of 1 Peter, Peter is constantly going back to, hey, the perfect example of this is Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's constantly pointing his readers back to Christ and the example that he set. So the first thing we see here is we are to have unity of mind. We are, we are to um, live harmoniously among other believers. The second thing that Peter brings up is sympathy. At a very basic level, sympathy is showing empathy, it's showing compassion, it's caring deeply about the needs of others. But see, the thing is, is it, it's more than just saying, man, I'm, I'm sorry. That whatever situation you're dealing with, that really sucks. It's, it's more than just saying, it's, just, it's more than talk. It's getting off the couch, it's, it's getting involved and. Guys, this has the potential to get messy, but it's getting down into the trenches, showing sympathy, showing care, showing love to those who need it. Dr. Constable, in the notes that we gave, uh, that we've had out since the beginning of the semester, when it comes to this term, says, sympathetic means suffering with another by entering into and sharing the feelings of others. And it's, it's, it's bearing one another's burdens. It's, it's stepping into the situation and, and being there for them and with them. Galatians chapter 6, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Showing sympathy, having sympathy in our lives for others is stepping in and saying, man, whatever it is you're going through, I want to go through this with you as well. I'm going to bear this burden with you. 1 Corinthians 12, this, again, Paul making the same point. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honor, honored, all rejoice together. In my Bible, actually next to this verse in 1 Corinthians, I have a little note written um, that says, I want my home group to look like this. Uh, about a year or two ago, my wife and I got to start a home group, and one of the very first things we talked about was this is what we want our home group to be look, looking like. This is what we want it to be marked by, is we want it to be a place where somebody can come, and if they're dealing with something really hard, they're open and they're vulnerable with us, but the group as a whole is going to bear this burden together. We're going to, when one member is suffering, we're all suffering. And if one is honored, we're all going to praise and rejoice. That's what we want our group to look like. That's what the church should look like. And Peter, making this appeal to all of the churches as a whole, all the people that he's writing to is, hey, when, when, one is, when one is suffering, we're all going to suffer. We're going to step in. We're going to be sympathetic. Like I said, this, this has the potential to get messy, right? You're getting involved in a situation, and it's more than just saying, man, I'm sorry. Because guys, if we're being honest, sometimes talk is cheap. And we forget, I mean, I'll be the first to admit, how often do we tell people, like, hey, I'll be praying for you, and then we just forget it, and then the next conversation, it's something that we forget to do. I mean, I, I'll be honest, I do that. And so, what Peter is trying to make us see here is how important it is for us to step into these situations, be sympathetic, and show the love of Christ. We weep for those who weep. Now, like I said, Jesus is, again, the perfect example of this. I, I love this passage from Hebrews chapter 4. 
It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The ultimate example of what it means to show sympathy is Jesus Christ himself. And what's so amazing about this verse, and we, we tend to forget, is, man, we have a high priest, the, the, the most perfect example of love, the most perfect example of all of these things in Jesus Christ. He is able to sympathize with you and me. The Son of God is able to sympathize with you and me in our weakness in every respect. I think we often skip over that. It's in every single part of our life he sympathizes with us. And so when, what it looks like to sympathize with others, what we do is we look to Jesus Christ. That is the example that Peter gives, and that's the example that Paul is going to jump back to all the time. And in all, like I said, all of these examples, the best example, or in all these characteristics, the best example is Jesus. So we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness, and that's what we should look to when it comes to sympathizing with others. But remember the context of all this. He's just, Peter's just gone through servants submitting to their masters, wives submitting to their unbelieving husbands, husbands honoring uh, their wives. How can we, in all of these situations, as he's writing to these people, how can we sympathize with them? How can we come alongside them, be there for them, bear the burden for them and with them, and show them the love of the Lord? That's what they were thinking through. That's what you and I have to think through is, okay, there are people in our life, how can we come alongside them and how can we sympathize with them bearing one another's burdens? The next thing that Peter jumps to is brotherly love. So this is a, a fraternal type of love. It's literally the love you would show a brother. The Greek word is, or the, the root here is philos. If, if you've never made the connection before, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. The Greek word here, philos, Philadelphia, brotherly love. That's where they get the, the city's nickname. But he, he says we should have brotherly love, which is showing love like a brother. Really the point he's trying to make is we should be devoted to one another in love. Multiple times throughout this whole book, this whole letter, Peter has made the appeal to love others. Uh, we've talked about this a few times. There's, there's no place in the believer's heart for, for hatred of anybody. We're called to love, and even as we'll see today, those who are persecuting you, persecuting you, alienating you, we're called to bless them. That's, we're, we're called to, as Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. We should, but in our community of believers, we should be devoted to one another in love. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 13 says, let brotherly love continue. Romans chapter 12 says, Love one another with brotherly affection, so the same word there. But then this is the best part. Outdo one another in showing honor. See, in, in Scripture, there's never a point where believers are called to an action, but it, it's pitted against each other where they have to compete to try to do more and more and more. The only time that is, is when it comes to showing love, showing honor. And we as believers should be committed to outdoing one another in showing honor. Think about how amazing that would look if that was truly, truly lived out. You know, as I was 
preparing for this, I, I was reading through an article by a guy named Ray Ortland, and he was talking about this passage in 1 Peter, but then he jumped to Romans 12. And he made a comment about something that he does at his Bible studies. What he, what he does is, at the end, he has what he calls the, the honor hour. And basically what it is, is it's, he gives the opportunity for somebody to stand up and say, like, hey, Joe, I just want to honor you because, you know, last week I was dealing with lust. I called you, and you talked to me on the phone for 20 minutes and talked me off the ledge. I just want to honor you and thank you for, for doing that for me. And then usually what would happen was somebody would, the other guy would stand up and say, man, I want to honor you because not many people would, would be willing to admit and call somebody and talk about that. And so thank you for being a man of integrity. Thank you for being honest and for, for being open in that moment. And he said it became this amazing time where we just saw a group of men and a group of believers continually showing honor to one another. And he's like, it's, it's what this verse looks like. It, it's what showing brotherly love to the people around you, and in our context, the men in this room. It's continually showing that love and trying to constantly outdo one another and showing honor. But then let's take this a step further. We've talked a lot about submission over the past few weeks, and it's not always an easy topic to broach, but what if we took what Peter's talking about here and outdid one another in showing submission? You see, by loving in this way, by showing honor in this way, by loving our brothers this way, we're showing the love of Christ. Look at John chapter 13. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is Jesus basically saying, man, we've got to love. We've got to love one another. The two commandments that Jesus gives us, some of the most important commandments are to love God and to love others. So our, our love for God should naturally create in us this love for other people. And when we do this, we are showing the world around us. When we are loving others, loving the body of believers, loving our brothers, we're showing the world around us who doesn't know Christ love of the Lord. You see, this is a love that unites all of us. This is something that connects every single one of us in this room. But man, here's the amazing thing. In brotherly love, in showing this love, we have to understand that God has chosen to show his love to the world through you and me. How amazing is that? The God of the universe is showing his love to those people here in this world that don't know him through you and I. Man, that's an amazing thing, and what a, what a privilege it is. We, we get to show people the love of God. And so the appeal that Peter is making is we must keep loving. The next thing he goes to is a tender heart. Now, literally translated, this might sound confusing. Literally translated, this means strong bowels, which you look at that and you're like, Peter, what in in the world are you talking about? But what he's trying to get at here is when it comes to having a tender heart, it's this deep-seated kind of emotion. The Jewish culture at the time really kind of believed that emotions came from your your core, and so showing this love uh, was really showing this, this deep love, this 
this uh, deep care, sympathy, compassion to a much, much deeper level. It's, it's, it's a deep-seated kind of emotion, kind of feeling. And so with that in mind, it takes this idea of having a tender heart and showing love to a much deeper level. Dr. Constable, in the notes like we passed out, says, uh, kind-hearted, or here in the ESV, it's translated tender heart. It means feeling affectionately, compassionately, and deeply for someone else. It's, it's having compassion. It's, it's showing really kind of hand-in-hand with what we talked about in sympathy. It, it's showing uh, those things to other people. Now, this is an example of Jesus feeding the 4,000, and I think this is a story that we typically will skip over when it comes to thinking through having a tender heart or, or being kind-hearted. Um, but we see the compassion of Jesus, because look at what he says here. It says, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. It seems very simple, but basically what we see here is Jesus caring for these people who have fallen. He very well could have said, hey, y'all just leave and go get food. Go, you can go do it yourself. But he has compassion for these people. You see the heart, the tender heart that Jesus has for others. Now translated to you and me, when it comes to having a tender heart, what does that look like? Man, it means it, it, it's, it goes hand in hand with sympathy. It, it's getting off of our feet and manifesting, our, manifesting itself into action. It's, it's bearing that burden with somebody. It's stepping into that situation. The, the parallel to the strong bowels is it's being physically and emotionally moved. It's getting to the point to where you can't help but do something. You can't help but step into the situation to show the love of the Lord. You can't help but get involved. And the last thing that Peter talks about is a humble mind. Or in some translations, it says a humble spirit. But really what this is, is it's humility. It's, it's, it's a lowness of mind, friendly, kind, and courteous. At a very basic level, it's being an understanding friend. It's just being a friend for somebody. But look at what we see in Colossians. It says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Again, Peter and Paul are making the same point, but what I love about this verse is it's not something where it's just, hey, man, you know, be humble. But no, he says, clothe yourselves with this. This is something that should be a part of your entire life, not something that you just take off and put on. No, this, this is something you clothe yourself with. And he goes on to talk about a lot of the same things that Peter's mentioned so far, but Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All of these things, clothe yourself with them. And so the point that Paul's making here is the same point that Peter's making. All of these characteristics, man, these are something that we should clothe ourselves with. Again, Paul in Philippians chapter 2 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. It's counting others more important. It's, it's putting somebody else's needs before your needs. You see, this applies to the purposes of God, but it also applies to the needs of others. What sometimes gets confusing when it comes to being humble is I think we'll tend to think, man, 
being humble means thinking less of myself because I'm thinking of others as more important and better. And I don't think that's true. I don't think it's thinking less of ourselves, but it's putting others' needs before our own. And it's as we saw in the Philippians 2 verse, it's, it's thinking of others better than ourselves. It's thinking of others' needs before our own. So we see these are the five characteristics that, that Peter is, is basically saying, hey, doing good looks like this. I've said do good a million times already, but this is what it looks like. You as a whole, as a community of believers, these should be the things that mark your lives. Not only individually, but also, more importantly, as the body of Christ. This is what you should be looking like. Clothe yourselves with these things. But then he's going to go on to say in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So we see that he, he says do not repay evil for evil. He, he's actually already used these two examples already in um, previous verses. Looking back to chapter 2, we even look at Jesus Christ as the example of this again. When he suffered, speaking of Jesus, when he suffered, he did not threaten. And then again, do not repay reviling with reviling. Perfect example of this would be Christ again in the same verse. He says when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. See, we understand that when, when we go through persecution, when alienation, when we go through all these things, we're not doing this alone because as a community, as a body of believers... We don't repay reviling for reviling or evil for evil. If we're being attacked, if we're being alienated, if we're being persecuted, what we see Peter call us to do through the example of Jesus Christ, it's to bless. That should be our response. Again, the perfect example of this is Jesus Christ, who while he was on the cross, while the, the, the Roman soldiers were putting him in so much pain, sticking nails through his feet and his arms, had the crown of thorns on his head, spitting on him, doing all of these terrible things on what was a torture device. Jesus looks up to the Father and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when you and I are facing persecution, when you and I are facing alienation, whenever we're going through these hard circumstances, Peter Pointing back to Christ as the perfect example of this is saying, no, we should bless. Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount right now on Sunday mornings, and so we've seen these points be made over and over again. But look at what it says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 47. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Guys, you see, Jesus is saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's so backwards from what the world would tell you to do. But also at the same time, the point he's trying to make here is, man, we should love those people. The people that persecute us, the people who um, are alienating us in this specific context in First Peter, 
the type of persecution they were going through, whether it was alienation from peers, coworkers, uh, family members, you, you fill in the blank. Jesus and Peter is saying, through Christ, man, bless. That should be our natural response. But the thing is, is it's, it's easy to love those who love us. And that was the, what that last part of Matthew chapter 5 is talking about, is it's easy to love the person who loves us. It's hard to love the person who doesn't show us that same love. And so the real test of love in our lives is by the way that we show love to those who don't love us. You see, this is the responsibility that you and I have as believers. We have the responsibility of blessing those who are against us, which again, sounds so backwards to what the world would have us do, but we see Jesus Christ himself saying, man, the responsibility that you have, remember God's chosen to, to show his love to the world through you and I, so the responsibility that we have is blessing those who are against us. And again, Peter is going to say, follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example that Christ gives us in every single one of these aspects. Because we make him known by the way we live our lives. The love that we show, the, the, the love that we show to not only those who love us, but those who make our lives difficult. We're showing the love of the Lord when we do that. We're showing his grace, his mercy, and the truth of the gospel by the way that we live our lives. Because the saying is true, guys. Actions speak louder than words. And this applies to every single one of these characteristics that we've talked about, but especially love. Because we're called and we have the responsibility to love others. You and I are supposed to do this, and we see that we have, for this reason, we may, it says we may obtain a blessing. Now, this is talking about, of course, the... Um, I do believe that God blesses those who do good, as we have seen uh, Peter constantly tell us to do. But also, this blessing is looking forward to the day uh, when Christ returns and we are going to live um, in eternity with him. It's this eschatological blessing. But here's the thing. As we do this in community, yes, we show love to others. We, we, we do that as individuals. But Peter's wanting us to understand, man, this is something that as in the body of Christ, this is what we do. We do this together. It's, it's not something that we want to do or individualistically. It's not something that Peter's calling us to here. He's saying do this in community. We do this together. And so from there, what Peter's going to do is he's going to jump to quoting Psalm 34. Now, it says, uh, for whoever desires to love life, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. There we see, do good again. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So we see him talk about good days. Why, why does Peter bring this up? He just goes through a list of characteristics and things that he says, this is what your lives should look like as believers. This is what you need to be doing. But then he jumps to Psalm 34 and says, if you want to have happy days, good days, have a good life, here's the things that you should do. Peter uses this to really address the wants of his readers. See, they, as you see in, this, in these verses, they wanted to live uh, or love life and see good days. I mean, who doesn't want that? 
But you see, the misunderstanding that they had is they thought that this would be the result of coming to faith in the Lord. They thought everything would be great. They thought, okay, I've professed my faith in the Lord. All of my problems are going to go away. This is something that a belief that we still see today. But in reality, the opposite was happening to them. As we've laid out every single week, they were facing persecution. And so they began to get confused. They're like, why, why are we facing these problems, but we've professed faith in the Lord? So they had a misunderstanding of what the good life was. We see in Psalm 34, uh, this is a psalm that David writes. He says, this is, if you want a good life, this is what it is. They, they didn't understand what the good life was. You see, they were facing trials, tribulations, persecution. And for them, their natural tendency, as is for you and I as well, is to react in anger and resentment and, and hatred in these situations. But Peter is calling them to live differently. And he's telling us to do the same thing. What does he tell them? To, to, to see the good life? He says, keep your tongue from evil. Don't speak deceit. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These are the things that, that give you this, the good life. The good life is living a life that we see Jesus call us to. But here, consider the context of Psalm 34. It's a, a wonderful psalm, and to be honest with you guys, I think Peter has the entire psalm in mind as he's quoting just this little part because I think it speaks to everything that Peter's talking about. But this is a psalm, like I said earlier, it's a psalm from David. David wrote this. And really, what's happened is, I don't have time to read and go into the whole chapter, but go back and read 1 Samuel chapter 21 because that's where this story uh, comes from, the psalm comes from. But basically, in that context, David was anointed king, but Saul was still king of Israel, and Saul was trying to kill David. David was fleeing his life. We see this all throughout 1 Samuel. David is fleeing, trying to get away from Saul, and he arrives at the door of the, this priest. And he's basically, at this point, lying to the priest and gets food from him, but he's doing all this because he's scared. He's trying to flee Saul, he's taking matters into his own hands. He's not trusting in the Lord. After he does this, he says, okay, I need something to protect myself. So the priest says, the only thing we have here is Goliath's sword, which is the man that you killed. So David takes that, then goes to Gath, which might not be, mean much to anybody, but Gath is the hometown of Goliath. So you can imagine walking into this city with Goliath's sword with the guy who killed him, you can imagine it probably wasn't going to go very well for David. Again, in the context, he's fleeing from Saul. He's trying to get away. Uh, he, he's scared, taking matters into his own hand. And so in this moment, while he's in Gath, obviously you can imagine people are angry. Instead of trusting the Lord, what he does is he begins to act insane. Literally, it's, it's crazy. You need to read the story. The Bible literally says that David changes his behavior and begins to write on walls and write on gates and act crazy, and he's, it literally says he acts insane to the point to where he lets spit draw down on his beard. It, like, it's this crazy story to think of King David doing something like this. But he acts insane to stay alive, and they finally, he gets out of the city, but then he writes this psalm. He writes Psalm 34 that talks about trusting in the Lord and really the Lord providing everything that we need for 
this good life. He, he learns to trust the Lord. Because look at what, what he says right before uh, the verses that Peter quotes. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, David understands that, man, through Christ, that is what we have. Through the Lord, we have the good life. But then he keeps going. In Psalm 34, we see um, Peter quoting here. He says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. At a very basic level, the righteous are those who do good. This is something that Peter is constantly going back to again and again and again. The righteous are those who do good. The unrighteous are those who do evil. You can see the opposites there. It's, it's two uh, contra- uh, contrary terms. But see, here's the thing. How does this apply to the readers that Peter's writing to? How does this apply to us? <coughs> We experience true joy when we face trials, tribulations, persecution, unpleasant circumstances, but when we face them in a Christ-like manner. That's what the true joy that we experience, and that's what Peter is trying to call his readers to by pointing back to Jesus, and the same thing is true for you and me. Look at James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. As you see, (coughs) excuse me, we experience the true joy of the good life that Jesus talks about, that Peter's talking about here, that David was seeking, that David even says to see, to love life and to have good days. We experience the true joy of those things when we have a unity of mind, when we show sympathy, when we have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Those are the things that should mark our lives as a community of believers. And those are the things that in that we, we have the good life, we, we, the good life of loving the Lord. And remember, we have the responsibility and the honor to show that love to the world. So here are y'all's questions for this week. The first one says, we're called to do good in this life. We see Peter talk about this all the time, even in suffering. What in our lives is preventing us from doing that, doing, doing good? What in our lives is preventing us in the circumstances that we're in from doing good? Second, our idea of the good life is different from that of the world. So the world would define the good life very differently. If we're just being honest with ourselves, what good life are we seeking? I think it's very easy to to get very comfortable with the life that we have and to forget um, to trust in the Lord. And we we tend to think that we can do things all on our own, and the life that I've built for myself is everything that I need. But which good life are you seeking? And then lastly, of the five characteristics that Peter lists— Which is the most difficult for you to live out and why? And then what can we do to implement these characteristics in our lives?
Father, thank you for today and for just bringing us here this morning, Lord, and I, I thank you for your word and everything that you've, you've taught us today. Lord, I pray um, that you would reveal to us the areas in our lives where we, um, Lord, Lord, where we can show your love more, where we can show the love of others, um, but as a, as a community of believers. So, Lord, I pray that you would um, be with us this morning in our discussions, uh, Lord, that we would walk out of this room today 